I tell people that sleep is a pillar of health, just like diet and exercise, it is the other main contributor to our health and well-being. We know that one thing that keeps people up at night is money. Like, yeah. Do you have any tips for people on reducing stress? Getting better sleep will also make you more efficient at work, lead to less errors. If you're on a RVU pay scale, you could ultimately boost your revenue. You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC, and now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Perfect. Welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors, everyone. I'm here, Rochelle Vanderzanden, with Corey Janoff, as always. And hey, today everyone. we wanted to talk about something we all could probably use a little more of, which is sleep, and specifically how getting your much-needed rest can help you improve your well-being and efficiency at work, which will hopefully help improve your finances, too. Corey's actually going to introduce our guest today. Yes, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Brandon Peters. Say hi, Brandon. Hi. (laughs) He's a board-certified physician in both neurology and sleep medicine, currently practices at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, and uh, he's written a book. He's written over a thousand articles on sleep. He's created a six-week self-guided program to help solve insomnia. You can find many of his articles at verywell.com and more information on him and his work at brandonpetersmd.com. With that, welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors, Brandon. Thank you, it's my pleasure to join you. Yeah, thank you for having or for being here. And as we mentioned, we wanted to talk a little bit about healthy sleep habits and tips for physicians who may not have the luxury of a consistent schedule like some people do. <laughs> we also wanna to briefly touch on sleep tips for parents today. So we're gonna to touch on that quickly. And I know you have some firsthand experience with that recently, Brandon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Cool. So we have a newborn who's uh, 11 weeks and is sleeping through the night. So. That's amazing. Of course. Yeah. For the- <laughs> <laughs> That's an accomplishment. Yeah. Um, before we jump into a whole lot of specific questions, do you want to just throw some stats or data our way to maybe help people get motivated to get better sleep? Yeah. So... I tell people that sleep is a pillar of health, just like diet and exercise, it is the other main contributor to our health and well-being. If you do not get enough hours of sleep or do not get a good quality of sleep, you're certainly going to be impacted in your daytime function. And uh, for adults, the average sleep need is in the range of seven to nine hours. Uh, If you are under seven hours, it's pretty unlikely that you're uh, meeting your sleep need. Very few people, perhaps less than 2% of the population, can function well in under seven hours of sleep. So for everyone else, it means they're sleep deprived, and that's going to affect concentration, attention, memory, certainly mood with impacts on anxiety, depression, and irritability. And then long-term, it has impacts on other aspects of health, certainly increases the risk for cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, uh, increases risk for diabetes, and even Uh, There's some evidence that sleep deprivation can affect cancer risk. There was a recent study just last week on increasing uh, the risk of cancer in women, breast cancer, 
Uh, there's been other studies that have found increased risks of, of colorectal cancer. So there's lots of good evidence and a growing body of, of research that supports the real importance of sleep to both health and long-term well-being. Yes. What are some common healthy sleep habits that people should be practicing? Help so, yeah, so generally you should try to meet your individual sleep need on a nightly basis, and that sleep need can change throughout life. But uh, you hear the average of eight hours. That's kind of the middle of a bell-shaped curve. Some people need a little bit more, and some can get by on a little bit less. If you find that you fall asleep very quickly within five minutes, that you sleep deeply, don't remember waking up, maybe you wake up feeling unrested or unrefreshed, and are prone to sleepiness during the day, taking naps or dozing when you're sedentary, you're probably a little under on sleep, or, or your sleep quality may not be normal. Uh, and that certainly can be impacted by sleep disorders like sleep apnea or other conditions. Uh, but get enough sleep, number one. Number two, prioritize sleep. So make sure that you're keeping a consistent sleep schedule as best you can. Now, certainly physicians who are shift workers may have to accommodate that. Um, but the ideal would be to have a consistent schedule day after day. And if you're working nights, that you do the best you can to keep to that schedule even through your days off and, and weekends. Uh, light exposure in the morning is very helpful to set the circadian rhythm. So if you're someone who's sleeping overnight, First thing in the morning, getting 15 minutes of sunlight right when you wake up can help set your circadian clock. That will make it easier to wake up and also easier to fall asleep. Now, I live in Seattle, so it's very rainy and, and dark in the mornings uh, these uh, winter months, but uh, that's something that will become easier for us to do in um, the spring and summer. Uh, I advise people also to try to minimize uh, caffeine and alcohol consumption late in the day. The half-life of caffeine is four to six hours, so you want to cut that out um, by mid-afternoon. Some people are not overly sensitive to it, but it's probably still helpful to reduce consumption uh, late in the day. And then alcohol takes roughly an hour for uh, an alcoholic beverage to be cleared from the body. Uh, you want to cut out alcohol at least a couple hours before going to bed because that can impact your sleep as well. I think regular exercise is important. You don't want to exercise in the last hour of the day, but... Uh, early in the day, getting aerobic exercise and, and keeping your weight in check is, is helpful as well. I think any of those things will help generally your health, but all of them will, will certainly affect and improve your sleep. Makes sense. Is there a difference between like insomnia and just being a poor sleeper, or is it kind of the same thing? Yeah, there's a lot of overlaps. Insomnia is, by definition, a difficulty getting to sleep at the beginning of the night more than 20, 30 minutes, uh, or waking in the night with that amount of time getting back to sleep, or early morning awakenings uh, and unrestful sleep, so feeling fatigued often during the day. Uh, those symptoms, if they happen for at least three nights a week and last for more than three months, we call it chronic insomnia. Now, someone can have poor sleep and not complain of difficulty either getting to sleep or getting back to sleep. Uh, they might say that they're a light sleeper or that their sleep's not restful, they're having sleepiness or other symptoms. And that generally would point us towards other sleep disorders like sleep apnea. And I, from my own experience, there's a lot of overlap between insomnia and sleep apnea. Many people have insomnia because of sleep apnea. They wake a lot during the night or feel unrested by their sleep because of sleep apnea. So it's good to have a formal evaluation if you're having persistent poor sleep. Often you can make behavioral changes, which you would teach as part of a, an insomnia program, a therapy program. And if you make some adjustments and find that you're sleeping better, 
then we wouldn't do further assessment. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that program? I think it's the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia program yeah. that you created. Yeah. So the best treatment for long-term chronic insomnia is that program CBTI. Uh, it's generally delivered through the help of a psychologist or medical doctor who's trained in that therapy. Uh, it's a six-week program, lots of education on normal sleep, things like sleep drive and circadian rhythm. Uh, you track your sleep patterns and then use that information to make adjustments to your sleep schedule. It might mean going to bed later or getting up earlier. Uh, cutting out naps, and then there's education on managing stress and anxiety. Certainly physicians have a lot of stress, and uh, sometimes it's hard to shut down a busy mind at night, and uh, it would give you techniques to kind of distract yourself so you can get back to sleep or, or get to sleep quicker. Um, and generally at the end of six weeks, most people who have completed the program no longer have insomnia. Many people that, ex that are using those techniques improve their sleep, uh, even if they don't have insomnia from the baseline. Uh, and years later, when you check on people, they continue to sleep well, continue to sleep normally because they've learned a set of skills that help them to improve their, their sleep. Beyond in-person therapy, there are workshops, classes. Uh, that's how we do it here at Virginia Mason. There's an online course that I've put together, and there's a few others that are out there, and there are even books that are available. Uh, I have a new book coming out in the next couple of weeks called Sleep Through Insomnia that is based on CPTI techniques that someone could read through and, and apply those techniques to their own sleep. That's exciting. Like insomnia, it, most people should be able to essentially cure it with healthy sleep habits. It's not like a chronic condition that can't really be solved, right? Yeah, so I think generally, if you can address the underlying causes, which may be uh, stress-related, maybe related to anxiety, could be environmental, so a noisy sleep environment, could be related to other behaviors like consumption of alcohol, consumption of caffeine, uh, or it could be uh, often related to how much time a person's attempting to sleep. So that's a very common cause of chronic insomnia where someone's not sleeping well, they go to bed early, or they had a bad night so they turn off their alarm in the morning and allow themselves to sleep in a little bit into the morning or they might try to take a nap during the day to try to catch up on sleep. So if you look at the math and say, okay, you're in bed 10 hours or 11 hours, I say, well, how much do you sleep? And they say, well, I sleep seven hours, eight hours if I'm lucky. It's like, well, if, if you're in bed that long and you're only sleeping seven hours, you're always going to have insomnia. You're going to bed too early, you're getting up too late. And I kind of joke with them, I'm like, this is not insomnia, it's math. You, you can't sleep 10 hours, and if you spend 10 hours in bed, you're gonna be awake two or three hours. So we help them to kind of understand those changes and, and make adjustments. And most people respond to that and, and, and do well. I think the folks who struggle more are those who have untreated sleep apnea that's maybe unrecognized by the person that's experiencing it, uh, or another sleep is sort of like restless legs that might be making it hard to, to get to sleep. So if someone completes CBTI and still is not sleeping well, generally we dig a little deeper with testing or look at some other options. Folks generally should not be on sleeping pills chronically. If you're taking a sleeping pill every single night for months or years, typically we've missed an opportunity to try to help you sleep better with other changes. I feel like there's a couple of different things that we could dive into a little bit more there. But one thing I want to go back to is just stress, because you mentioned stress a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And we work with people and talk about money a lot. And we know that one thing that keeps people up at night is money. Like yeah. you have any tips for people on reducing stress or? So, kind of, yeah. yeah, 
there's a few techniques which I think are helpful. It can be helpful to do an exercise called scheduled worry time, where you set aside time, typically at the end of your workday when you're reviewing the stresses in your life. And these might be, like you said, financial stresses. It could be relationship stress. It could be other family stress. It might be health-related stresses or other kind of professional work stresses. And you, you write those things down. So you're making a list of all the stresses in your life. And you're also trying to brainstorm and create some ideas that you could help resolve those sources of stress. So, for example, a stressor could be, I forgot to do my taxes. So your plan is to meet with the tax accountant uh, pay the penalties, pay the back taxes. You have specific things to accomplish in order to resolve that source of stress. And as you come back to that list each day, you're not going to generally add new stressors. That's going to be basically the same thing day to day. Um, but you might accomplish some of those tasks and kind of work away at some of those stressors. And eventually, perhaps you get to cross off pay back taxes. Um, you've accomplished something that was causing you stress. If you think about that at night, oh my God, I didn't pay my taxes. You say, no, it's on my sheet. I'm going to come back to that tomorrow. I'm not going to think about that right now. Um, I get to go back to sleep. And, and you kind of put it aside and then come back to it the next day. It's almost like a pressure relief valve. You get these things off your mind so you don't have to constantly think about them. Uh, and by working through them in kind of an organized, rational way, it gives you a sense of control over things that you may not otherwise have control over. There may be some things on that list that you say, gosh, I can't do anything about this. That's okay, too, to say, you know, I've got to let this go. I'll come back to tomorrow. Maybe something will have changed. But for today, I have to put it aside because it's just making me feel upset and there's not anything I can do about it. So I think it's it's a very helpful exercise to use. Yes, yeah, interesting. I do find that when I'm learning something new, like that's something that keeps me awake more, yeah. but like because your brain is trying to learn a new task maybe or something like that. But I've definitely found that or you just wake up and you're worried about it and really it's like, okay, this is the nighttime. I'm not supposed to be thinking about this right now. Yeah, and having a, a nice, what we'll call a buffer zone, an hour, maybe two hours before your goal bedtime when you put aside your work and say, okay, there's more to learn, there's more to study, there's more to do, but I can't do anything more today. It's time to put that aside and spend that hour or two reading, watching a movie, watching familiar TV, so that you're feeling relaxed and sleepy when you transition to bed. That will help you to fall asleep faster. Yeah. Fantastic. Being organized and structured helps you sleep better. Um, <laughs> and I feel like it's there's somewhat of a chicken and an egg deal going on here with stress and sleep. You know, what comes first? I feel like, you know, added stress can lead to lack of sleep and also vice versa. Lack of sleep can probably lead to being more stressed about things that you maybe otherwise shouldn't be that stressed about. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is what we call bi-directional relationships. So if somebody has both anxiety and depression and insomnia, typically it's best to focus on their sleep. If you help them to sleep better, that will reduce their anxiety, reduce their sense of depression. Um, if you only focus on their anxiety or only focus on depression, but ignore their sleep, typically they'll continue to have poor sleep and their mood disturbance as well. Uh, and it's best if someone's in an acute stress situation, you give them skills to kind of work through that with the expectation that as time passes, that stressor will resolve and go away and they can transition back to, to normal sleep. 
This is kind of leads into one of the things we talked about with one of our previous guests, um, Jimmy Turner, the physician philosopher. He's talking about how he's able to get his finances in order, pay off a lot of debt, reduce his workload. I'm sure we didn't talk about it, but I'm sure that leads to him getting better sleep as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which it's only going to help you know your your, your financial picture. Your, and I feel like you know getting better sleep will also make you more efficient at work, lead to less errors. If you're on a RVU pay scale, you could ultimately boost your revenue. Um, have you seen any studies or, or, or data surrounding that? Yeah, it's not well studied. Certainly, there's a lot of study uh, studies looking into resident physicians and medical errors and uh, all that that goes with kind of poor sleep or, or kind of overworking. Frankly, there were limits put in place uh, to work no more than 80 hours a week, which still sounds like a lot to most people. Um, but none of those limits apply to someone who's already graduated their residency and is, is in practice as an attending physician. So there's no evidence that someone gets better at being sleep deprived and that suddenly they can uh, make fewer errors or have greater mental clarity just through kind of rote practice of being sleep deprived. Uh, there's no data to support that. And, and in fact, the contrary, that when you get better sleep, even one night of really good recovery sleep, there's an immediate benefit. People feel mentally clearer and sharper. They make fewer errors. And it could be errors in the surgical suite, or it could be errors typing their clinic notes. And if you're inefficient um, because of a lack of mental clarity, you're going to be spending longer days kind of catching up on paperwork. You may make mistakes that ultimately prove to be costly with a malpractice claim. Um, and professional athletes are, are kind of catching on to the importance of sleep and often have sleep advisors kind of coaching the team about how to adjust to jet lag and, and getting adequate amounts of sleep. And, and they get benefits. I mean, these professional athletes who are at the top of their game can run faster, can be stronger. I mean, they're, there are benefits even among elite athletes. So I think the same is true for professionals and, and physicians, that if you can give your body the rest that it needs, you will function much better and, and come out ahead in the long term. Do you have any good strategies for doctors specifically who are on call or have to switch back and forth between day shift and night shift, like making those kinds of adjustments? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, the best thing would be to keep a consistent schedule and, and sometimes that can be accomplished with with creative scheduling so like an ER physician who may be having rotating shifts and work nights or work a late shift it'd be best if they kept on that late shift for a month uh, and then switched to a new shift rather than having a, a shift that's rotating across the week or across several weeks um, then they can fall into a circadian pattern that would help them to sleep a little bit better and then they could kind of switch or ease off of that. If you are working nights, it's best to avoid light coming home in the morning and to immediately try to get into bed and, and to go to sleep. Uh, blackout curtains or eye masks, earplugs. I mean, there's different techniques that can be used to try to enhance the sleep experience. Um, but yeah, it's ideal if you can kind of lock into a, a consistent schedule. Now, if you said, well, I can't do that, and I have this rotating pattern, certainly shift workers sometimes need sleeping pills or medications to help them be more awake during the day. Um, but the idea would be to have a consistency, even if it's a consistent nighttime uh, work schedule. 
And what about docs who have to take call, like if you know, you're an anesthesiologist or a surgeon or something and you're you know getting called in yeah. during the weeknights and then every other every third weekend, like how what do you do yeah. to cope with that? Yeah, so I was on call last week, which uh, admittedly sleep call is a little lighter than, than others, but uh, I could get called by the sleep lab in the middle of the night, somebody, a question that comes up, or sometimes I get paged from patients for calling into the hospital operator. And so the week that I'm on call, my phone is in my bedroom. Otherwise, when I'm not on call, it's not. Um, I don't have it at my nightstand. It's charging out in the kitchen as much as possible. Um, if there's a disruption, uh, somebody calls me in the night and I just need to talk to them, I'll typically keep the lights low, have a short conversation, and, uh, and I generally sleep well, so getting back into bed, I'm able to fall back asleep pretty easily. If someone were to be called into the hospital, of course, that's even more disruptive because they have to wake up enough to be able to safely drive in and accomplish what they need to accomplish and then perhaps return home. Um, I think you should still try to get at least seven hours of sleep, even if it's broken up. And it might mean starting your clinic day or your work day a little later to accommodate disruptions during the night. Um, perhaps uh, catching up a little bit with uh, intentional naps, either over lunch break or, or in the evening. Um, caffeine certainly can help people cope, but trying not to overuse caffeine um, because, again, that can be disruptive to sleep. Uh, so there's some ways we can accommodate those disruptions. Uh, I, I think ideally we would have protections personally saying boundaries of our own schedules and what we're willing to do as far as covering call and, and our own work, um, but also professionally having some boundaries and, and um, trying to minimize disruptions to, to the sleep of our, our physicians, I think is something that needs to have a higher priority uh, among healthcare, that there are really, frankly, not a lot of sleep emergencies. I don't need to be hearing from the hospital operator when someone calls in and says their CPAP machine is not working. There's nothing I can do to fix that machine. And, and someone called in the middle of the night reporting that their CPAP didn't work. And I said, just call back in the morning. That, that this is not something I can help you with. So uh, if there are certain guidance in place, uh, I think we all sleep better if there's fewer disruptions and uh, putting off things that are, are not emergencies, I think, is important. Well, that kind of gets back to if you can get your finances in order, mm -hmm. live below your means, you have a greater ability to say no. Like you could take a job and say, hey, I'm not taking call. That's fine if you're going to pay me less, but I'm not going to do it. Or yeah. you pay you know, some younger doctor to, to take your call for you. Um, so there's definitely some, some strategies there if, if you've got some flexibility with the budget. Yeah, yeah, and I think, yeah, and it extends to kind of when you start your clinic day, when you end your clinic day, whether you work weekend clinics, and, and uh, certainly having boundaries. There is no limit to the amount of work that you can do. There is no limit to the number of requests you'll get for projects and things. I mean, at some point, you just have to say no, uh, that you want to protect your own personal life, time with your family or friends, or your own health by ensuring you get enough sleep and, and enough rest to be able to function at your best. Yeah, I think it's obviously residents and fellows just have so little control, but at some point they will have a little bit more control and they're, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to try to get your finances in order so that you guarantee yourself a little bit more flexibility when it comes to money and the amount of hours you work.
Yeah, and I think that's that's generally the balance people try to find is the balance between uh, wealth or, or financial stability and and time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think as people become more stable, they often reclaim time that they've given up in order to reach that stability. And I think in reclaiming time, obviously sleep is one of those things that gets gets supported more as you stabilize your finances. Yeah. You mentioned sleeping pills a couple of times, and I know there's various different sleep aids that people try. I've actually heard about melatonin a couple of times recently. Mm -hmm. Do you have any opinions on what's more effective, what the dangers are, that kind of stuff? So I have a unique philosophy towards sleeping pills because most people who are coming to see me, the pills are no longer working. Uh, and I'm trying to transition them away from them, identifying kind of root causes to help them to sleep better. Uh, and I, I tell people, you know, you don't take medicine to feel hungry. Why would you need medicine to feel sleepy? Uh, there are other things, other techniques we can use to try to enhance sleep without needing to rely on the medicine. Melatonin is something your body naturally makes. It doesn't make very much of it. Just like 0.2 milligrams uh, is produced overnight. It does enhance sleep. It is associated with the nighttime and uh, I think it's okay to use. Most people are using it to induce sleep and would take it 20 to 30 minutes before their intended bedtime. You want to use fairly low doses because higher doses might flood the system and you might wake up feeling uh, hungover. Side effects are pretty benign. It's like increased dreaming, nightmares is probably the more common side effect. Um, not a lot of people would say they get a profound benefit from using melatonin. So most people say, yeah, it helps a little bit, but uh, if your insomnia persists, I would certainly move along to a, a different treatment, and, and insomnia therapy would probably be first line for folks who have troubles that last more than a couple of weeks. I think occasional use of a sleep aid is okay, uh, especially if you're like experiencing jet lag or something. It's fine to, to use a, a transient use of, of a medication, but if you're using it nightly and using it for, again, beyond a few weeks, we probably need to be looking at some other options. So transitioning here a little bit, a lot of our listeners and guests, such as yourself, have young children, which can be a kryptonite for sleep. So mm -hmm. how can parents of young kids get their much-needed rest? Yeah, so it's a challenge. I have an 11-week-old son uh, who is sleeping through the night. Uh, last night, I think he was asleep by 7.30, 8 p.m., and he slept till 5.30 in the morning. Uh, but that's kind of unusual. I would say that only half of children will be sleeping through the night by, by three months. They have the ability to, to do that. And certainly early on, they're needing to feed every couple of hours, which means two or three awakenings to feed in the night. And, of course, those last like 30 minutes, so you have big chunks of time that you're losing. Uh, it's tough. I mean, it really is tough, and, and I think... Don't try to be a superhero about it. If you need help, either from your partner or from a family, certainly accept accept that help. Uh, it's good to have nights when you get a little reset. So even one night when you're able to sleep through the night and not have to be up for feeding is really great. And, and that might mean pumping breast milk and, and storing it in the fridge and or using formulas as a substitute. I think it's important to try to keep as regular schedule as possible and catch up when you can, sleep when baby sleeps. So if you can take 
an hour nap in the afternoon when the baby's down, that's a good time to try to catch up. Uh, if the child is not sleeping through the night beyond six months or certainly beyond a year, uh, that often speaks to kind of how the parent responds to the child in the night. So most children may cry out, but if you leave them be, they can self-soothe and, and get back to sleep. Uh, if the child continues to cry out, it's often because they're getting something for that. They're getting attention or they're getting an extra bottle or something. So the parent will have to kind of need to retrain the child a little bit, which can be done typically over a, a short period of time, certainly within a few weeks. And, and the child will be able to sleep better through the night. It's also important for parents to recognize not every child is the same. You might have two children with very different sleep needs and abilities and um, trying to force a child to go to bed early and sleep through the night and sleep through till 7 a.m. when that child maybe doesn't need that much sleep, you're going to kind of set yourself up for failure as the child gets older. What are some good guidelines for kids and how much sleep they need at different ages? Yeah, it really varies. Uh, certainly older children, uh, teenagers probably need anywhere from eight to 10 hours of sleep. Uh, younger kids often need 10 to 12, and uh, certainly infants are going to take prolonged naps during the day as well. Uh, a child who's three probably is going to be consolidating their naps to just one nap during the day. Um, but by school age, like five, four or five, the nap tends to kind of fade away, and then they're just getting a solid chunk of sleep. It might be 11 or 12 hours kind of overnight. But I, I tell people, just like weight and height, there are percentiles for sleep. So not every child needs, let's say, 12 hours of sleep. They might be someone who can get by with a little bit less. And so if they're at a percentile of, of sleep need that's lower, perhaps that child only needs 10 hours of sleep. And by spending 12 hours in bed, they're going to be awake a lot in the beginning of the night or in the middle of the night because they're just being compelled to spend too much time in bed. So. Just like we do with adults, it's good to pay attention to their cues and and pay attention to your own sense of, of whether or not they're sleepy. If, if they're not falling asleep for a prolonged period at the beginning of the night, it might be that they're just not sleepy at that point. Keeping them up a little later, half hour later, an hour later, might be enough for them to fall asleep more easily. Yeah, I think the cues are sometimes challenging. It's Is, is the kid overtired or, you know, just angry for some other reason, you know, there's so many different emotions that those little rascals go through on a yep. daily, hourly, they change yeah. by the minute sometimes. Yeah, and, and they don't necessarily know how to recognize those signals themselves and, and certainly can't regulate as well as adults can. So, yeah, and, and you just try to keep consistency. I think that's probably the best is, is having consistent bedtime routine having consistent sleep experience. If you're recognizing deficit where you say, wow, they're awake a lot in the night, adjusting just like you would for other needs. Is there a kind of a, a, an easy, for lack of a better word, way to tell if your kid is getting enough sleep or, or, or not enough or, or too much? Or Yeah, I would say you want to try to match the amount of time they're sleeping to the amount of time they spend in bed. Uh, older children, again, beyond the age of five, really shouldn't be taking naps during the day. So if they are, that's probably a sign that they're not getting enough sleep at night. 
You also want to make sure they're not overly engaged, watching TV, playing games, or whatever, late into the evening, so that that's a reason they're sleep deprived. Um, you want to kind of cool things down in the later evening hours, probably after six or seven, where you're reading, you're having bath time, you're kind of getting them feeling sleepy so they can transition to bed a little easier. Um, children generally aren't overly sleepy during the day. They more often get hyperactive and can get diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. Um, if the child has those kinds of symptoms, often we look at their sleep and make sure they get enough hours of sleep, but also make sure they don't have a sleep disorder like sleep apnea that might be affecting their sleep quality. So they can, kind of like adults, if they fall asleep relatively quickly, then it's probably a good sign if they're tossing and turning and fussing and up a bunch, maybe you're trying to force them to bed too early. Yeah, they might be spending too much time in bed. Okay. And I've also heard that sometimes maybe they're just not getting to bed early enough. Like kids can get to the point where they're overtired and they have a hard time falling asleep. Yeah, that definitely can happen too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, they get kind of inconsolable <laughs> about, about things. So yeah. And again, it's kind of figuring out, okay, here's the expectation based on an age and, and population data. You're, you're somewhere in this range, most likely. And the same is true for adults. There's a range and then figuring out kind of individually, what is kind of the average? How much sleep are you getting in a 24-hour period? And then trying to keep a consistent schedule to meet that need. And it changes. That's the challenge is that it changes as kids get older and can even change in adults as we get older as well. But um, trying to match, and the same you would do with intake of food and, and appetite. It, you, you could overfeed a child and you can underfeed a child. And you're trying to find that sweet spot of uh, they've got enough uh, nutritional intake that they're meeting their needs and, and not um, going beyond that. Same, same with sleep. Maybe to close things out here, do you know how sleep habits of children can affect them later in life? So insomnia is pretty uncommon in children. Again, it tends to be behavioral because of how a parent's responding. Yep. Teenagers can get delayed sleep phase syndrome where they become a night owl. That affects about 10% of, of teenagers. And light in the morning is very helpful for that group. Uh, other sleep disorders like sleep apnea are fairly uncommon in, in children. Perhaps 2 or 3% of, of children have, have sleep apnea. Uh, if someone is persistently not sleeping well, certainly we would want to address it with either behavioral changes initially or sleep testing to look for other causes of poor sleep. Uh, there certainly are people who are predisposed towards a sleep disorder, even from youth, and um, there are interventions that can happen in childhood that would actually give them long-term benefits, like treating allergies might help development and, and change long-term risk for sleep apnea, for example. So I, I encourage evaluation, always err on the side of getting checked out and, and getting tested, and if there's a disorder acknowledged, then uh, treatment, I think, is, is something that's easy to engage in and kind of see how the person, child, responds. And do you know, have there been any studies done, to your knowledge, of, like, kids who are better sleepers or, or, or you know, later in life tied to either education achievement, income, job, anger, stress, whatever, like, later in life, have there even been those studies? I don't think there's been a lot of long-term studies looking at that. Certainly we could envision sort of anecdotally that that would be true. When I was a college student, one of my projects, my honors thesis was looking at 
uh, sleep habits of college students and how that impacted GPA. And generally, students who had more regular sleep schedules and got adequate amounts of sleep had higher GPAs. And I was looking at uh, two groups, psychology students uh, and biology students, both lower level and higher level classes. And, and the, the patterns held that, that people who had regular sleep patterns and got enough sleep had higher grades. So of course that plays out in, in various ways, but we would expect long-term that they would continue to have either a personality type that allows them to protect their sleep or uh, in protecting their sleep, they get other benefits that give them long-term success. Awesome. Thank you for all of your feedback. Yeah, my pleasure. Is there yeah, anything that we didn't great. ask that you think would be helpful for our listeners to know? I think generally I would just advise people to honor sleep that again, it is part of your health and your well-being, and there's, there's no reason to shortchange yourself. I think the impacts are often neglected by the person who is experiencing them. They don't have insight into their impairments. And I think if you can consistently get a sufficient number of hours and a good quality of sleep, uh, it will benefit your health and, and your relationships and your financial well-being beyond what you could imagine. Amen. Any, uh, aside from your website, anywhere else people should go if they want to find more of you or follow you, if you want them to find and follow you? Uh, the only other thing you might check out is Twitter. Uh, I, sh I mostly share sleep information, but uh, you can hop on there and I'll share articles that I've written or other content that I find that's interesting. Fantastic. And my, yeah, my Twitter handle is, remember, at Brandon Peters MD. Excellent. We'll include a link to your profile. I follow you, so it'll be easy to find. But we'll include a link in our show notes. Well, thank you very much, Brandon. Appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on LinkedIn as well. Check out all the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our blog, thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Affinity Group, LLC.